Matthew chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard it, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he began to inquire of them where the Christ was to be born. They said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet, In you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and ascertained from them the time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make careful search for the child. And when you have found him, report to me that I too may come and worship him. And having heard the king... They went their way, and lo, the star, which they had seen in the east, went on before them until it came and stood over where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And they came into the house, and they saw the child with Mary his mother. And they fell down and worshipped him. And opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed for their own country by another way. And when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, and take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. And he arose and took the child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt. And was there until the death of Herod, that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, Out of Egypt did I call my son. Last week we took a, uh, a look at how God brings to pass, by his predestining hand, everything that he has promised. Everything that has been prophesied will come to pass. And we have seen that prophecy is but nothing but God's predestined plan. And it will surely happen despite what appears to be insurmountable obstacles. God's promises will always come to pass. We saw how last week we looked at how uh, Jesus came from the uh, royal line of David. Despite being a descendant of Solomon through Jeconiah, one of his descendants, and we saw that Jeconiah, because of his sin, God said none of his descendants would ever sit on the throne of David, thereby physically cutting off any male heir coming from the royal line in that sense. We saw how Jesus was virgin born. And yet, also we saw how Jesus was literally the fruit of David's body, and that he was a physical descendant of David through his mother Mary. 
But Mary was not of the regal line. And Jesus, we saw, gets his legal right to the throne of David through Joseph. For Joseph was Jesus' legal stepfather. So God worked all that out for Jesus to be literally from David, virgin born, have a right to the throne, and yet the, the statement that God said none of Jeconiah's descendants would ever sit on the throne is true, and God worked it out in the minutest detail. And so we should see that biblical prophecy will always come to pass. Jeremiah 1.12 is a great verse that simply says this. God says, For I am watching over my word to perform it. Not in that wonderful thought. God watching, watching, meaning constantly, over his word so as to make it come to pass. God is eternal. God is all-knowing. God is everywhere present. Centuries can pass after centuries. Generations can come and go. But God's word will never be forgotten. Because God says, I am always watching over it to bring it to pass. So in the birth of Jesus Christ, this great prophecy where the, uh, where the Messiah was to be born shall come to pass. Now we're going to talk about this great prophecy a little bit more later on. But for the moment, this prophecy of where Jesus, the Messiah, would be born in Bethlehem was prophesied 700 years before the event. Now, that's a long time. How many generations passed over that 700 years? But God says, I'm always watching over my word to perform it. God never forgot about it. And amazingly, others understood the prophecy and believed in this, such as these magi that come from the east, uh, from the east to follow this star that they saw to Bethlehem. We are told in chapter 2, verse 1 in our text, that Jesus was born in Bethlehem during the days of King Herod. Do you know all the things that God did just to get, <clears throat> to have Jesus born in Bethlehem? There is no other place on planet Earth that the Messiah could be born other than Bethlehem. Why? Because God said that's where he would be born. Not in Nazareth, not on the way. But in Bethlehem. Now our text, I'd like you to turn to, to Micah to see that prophecy uh, that we have. Turn to, to Micah chapter 5. And look at verse 2. Here's the prophecy. 700 years before it would come to pass. But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you one will go forth from me to be the ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. That passage is summarized in our text in Matthew 2. 
But it says he will be the ruler over my people, but his goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Whose? This child to be born is none other than the eternal God. We know if you were to turn over to John chapter 7, verse 42, we see um, it was well known and people understood this prophecy. John 7, verse 42 reads, Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? We see that this prophecy, that the promised Messiah would come from this little village of Bethlehem. And if you were to jump ahead here for a moment in chapter 2 of Matthew to verse 23, it says, And he came and resided in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. Not only will the Messiah be born in Bethlehem, but there was a, uh, it was stated that he would come forth from Nazareth, would be a Nazarene. Now, if you were to look, the skeptics have looked at this and said there is no place in the Old Testament where it says explicitly a, some prophet, prophecy that he would be called a Nazarene. However, if you were to look at Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, one of the things that we see there is that the Messiah is called branch, and the Hebrew word for branch is the word netzer, meaning the separated one, or as some say, the Nazarene. And so this Messiah would come from Bethlehem, but he would come from Nazareth. Now, Nazareth did not have a good reputation in his time. And Nazarene was often viewed as a despicable man. And if you may have known some of your, your scriptures, that when Nathaniel, when some came to Nathaniel and said, we found the Messiah, and he knew that there was Jesus from Nazareth. It was Nathaniel says, can anything good ever come from Nazareth? Nazareth did not have a good reputation in the community at all. Now, how do we put all this together? The Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, as Micah says. Says he would be taken to Egypt by Joseph and Mary. And when they returned from Egypt, they settled in Nazareth, so that in his ministry, Jesus would be called Jesus of Nazareth. Though born in Bethlehem, and everyone knew he was born in Bethlehem, no one called him Jesus of Bethlehem. He was always called Jesus of Nazareth. Now, what did God do to get Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem. Now, Joseph is from Nazareth. And they were living in Nazareth. They were in Nazareth when the angel came to them, uh, informing them that this child who Mary is pregnant with is no ordinary child, but is the promised one. 
We are told that Mary was carrying this child. And we see, according to Scripture, what shall have to come to pass. The child would have to be born in Bethlehem, nowhere else. Now, it so happened that Joseph was from the house and the family of David. And it so happened that the emperor of the Roman Empire, by the name of Caesar Augustus, was in control of the uh, was in control of that area. Uh, Palestine was under the subjugation of the Roman Empire. It was one of the distant provinces of the Roman Empire, and it so happened that this emperor decided to have a tax of the inhabited world, meaning the Roman Empire over which he saw, and these taxes, according to extra-biblical sources, were carried out every 14 years. Now, did Caesar Augustus say, look, i got to be sure that I authorize a tax so as to get this Joseph and Mary in some remote part of my empire, i got to get them to, to their city to register to be taxed, so that this promised Messiah of the Hebrews can be born. Oh, wait a minute. I'm divine. I'm the Savior of the world. Forget about it. No. He authorizes a tax that forces everyone you had to go to your place to register where all your family records were, and where your family ties were known. Joseph was from Bethlehem, the city of David. So they are being forced by a Roman decree to go to Bethlehem. So happened at the time that she was pregnant. Now did Joseph say to Mary, Now Mary, we got to leave right now. Because we got to get right down there in time for you to have this child in Bethlehem. Because 700 years ago, Micah prophesied this. You think that was on his thinking? You know, this is a prime example of how in this biblical truth that God orchestrates the events of human history to always accomplish what he has said. Now, when we said, God said in Jeremiah, I'm always watching over my word to perform it. 700 years have elapsed. You've got a Roman emperor who decides to tax his empire. You've got Joseph and Mary who's with this child, and they have to go to Bethlehem to register for this tax. Did anyone force Caesar Augustus? To make that journey, I mean to make that decision to tax the empire, he did it of his own free will. Joseph took his wife to Bethlehem of his own free will. I'm saying this to you to indicate that men make legitimate moral decisions that carry consequences, and yet those free moral decisions always, without exception, fits into God's predestined plan. Now, our confession of faith in two of its chapters is a wonderful expression of that fact. God never forces anybody against their will. Do you hear that? 
He never forces anybody against their will. You say, what about salvation? He doesn't force you against your will. You know what he does? He changes your heart so that you desire to come to Jesus. That's how he does it. But men are free to make decisions that carry consequences. And here we see gloriously how God has Caesar make a decree and how Joseph and Mary in in obeying that decree will end up where they are supposed to be to fulfill a prophecy of 700 years ago. Now, Psalm 139, this ought to comfort us, brethren, this great fact. And it's a challenge to us. I want us to read, I mean, look at Psalm 139. Look at the first several verses. O Lord, Thou hast searched me and known me, Thou dost know when I sit down and when I rise up. Thou dost understand my thought from afar. Thou dost scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, thou dost know it all. Thou hast enclosed me behind and before and laid thy hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful to me. I am too high. I cannot attain to it. God is sovereign. God is everywhere present. He is all-knowing. He is all-powerful. And whatever God has decreed, you can be assured, it will happen. And God is so, so much God that He can allow you and me to make decisions without any external constraint, we're not puppets, and yet every decision we make will fulfill the plan of God. Now, if that doesn't cause amazement to you, I don't know what will. If that doesn't cause you to worship the Lord with a greater desire, I don't know what will. This is how sovereign our God is. Not only did these prophecies have to be fulfilled that Jesus would be born of a virgin in Bethlehem, he would have to be called a Nazarene, so he'd have to be from Nazareth. And there was a precise timing in history that would have to take place as well. You say, what is that? Well, turn with me to Daniel. Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 28. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, Until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. It will be built again in a plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then after the sixty-two weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing, and the people of the Prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. And he will make a firm covenant with many for one week, 
But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. According to Daniel, the coming of the Messiah, this is a promise of the coming of the Messiah to Jerusalem. It's a, it's a prophecy concerning his atoning work that would be accomplished within this 70 weeks. And it is not an uncommon thing in Scripture to measure a year in terms of a day. In other words, a week, seven days, would be viewed as seven years. Now, we see that in Scripture. For example, uh, I don't need to turn to the passage, but if you were to write it down and look at it later, Genesis 29, 27 and 28, where Jacob was in love with Rachel. <clears throat> he was deceived by her father, and uh, he's going to work another, he says, a week for her. Well, it actually was seven years. And so this, this idea of days being measured by years is not an uncommon thing in Scripture. You see it uh, when Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And why? Because uh, <clears throat> of all the days that the spies were in the land for 40 days, he says, because you didn't obey me, you'll wander for a year for every day. So that kind of thing is not unusual in Scripture. So the 70 years times 70 equals 490 years. Daniel said the prophecy would commence from the command to rebuild the temple after, after its destruction by the Babylonians. Biblical scholars have seen that that command to rebuild the temple was around 444 B.C. There is the possibility that the reference to Darius' command a century later could be that issuing. Regardless, 490 years from that takes us to the time of Jesus Christ. And so we see that all of this, so it wasn't going to be 200 years from that decree. It was going to be in fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy. You could do also some research, some Bible scholars have looked into it and said that Jesus, when he was on the cross, the scripture says he died at the third <clears throat> or the ninth hour, 3 p.m. At the time of the evening offering, which some have said Jesus may have died at the exact time, centuries of when Daniel prophesied concerning it. I'll just leave it to you. I wouldn't be surprised. God watches over his word to perform it. Now, regardless of how we work out all these details, those 490 years takes us to the time and the ministry of Jesus. Now, what about the date of Christ's birth? We have no way of knowing for sure. But most Bible scholars place his birth either late 5 B.C. or early spring 4 B.C. But definitely before King Herod's death 
which we know from history to be in the early spring of 4 B.C. In Scripture, we're told that Jesus was born shortly before Herod's death. And so, was Jesus born in late December? Maybe, but we don't know for sure. Some believe it could have been April 4th, 4 B.C. So the celebration of Christ's birth on December 25th, all we can say is tradition, but nothing else. As we look at, if you turn back to Matthew 2, verses 1 through 3, we need to always let Scripture be our guide and not tradition. You know, there's a common song that's sung uh, in the time of year coming up. We three kings of Orient are, are come. <laughs> now, first of all, were there three kings? First, we're not told how many magi are there. We're not in the text. It just says magi from the east. So, where do we get the idea of three wise men? And where does it say three kings? It doesn't say kings either. It has, been, it has been assumed that there were three magi because of the three gifts that are given. And that each one gave a gift. But just mind you, I mean, it could be, but it is a presumption. We don't know. It could have been... Several, it could have been five or ten. We just don't know. Where did they come from? Well, it says they came from the east. And uh, exactly where, we don't know that either. Uh, It is apparent that these, one thing is for sure, that these magi were deeply interested in religion. That's for sure. And they were, to a certain degree, engaged in astronomical studies because they saw and followed the star. We know in that portion of the world there was an interest in astronomy. And so these these magi uh, <coughs> were interesting men. And uh, we see that this star that they followed was an unusual star. And somehow these magi associated this star with messianic prophecy of the Jews, which is really interesting. How do we how do we account for that? How do we account for these Gentiles from the east having associating a star with a messianic prophecy? Well, early Christian fathers believe for various reasons that these magi came from Persia, which they may well have come from, which is modern-day Iran. So if you know your geography a little bit, you ought to be familiar where Iraq is today. And east of Iraq is modern-day Iran. So there are some that conjectured that there is a reason to think these men, these wise, these magi came from Persia. Now, how did they 
know about Messianic prophecies? Well, from the 8th to the 6th century B.C., there were Jewish, there was a period of Jewish regular dispersions to this geographical area known as the city of the Medes. And so these Jewish monotheists, which are those who believed in one God, they obviously impacted their neighbors when they would settle in, when they got moved there. And these Magi were familiar with certain Messianic prophecies. And here's what's noteworthy. They wanted to come and what? Worship this child. Now, that's no minor thing, mind you. Somehow they associated this star with this prophecy, and they wanted to worship this child, this king of the Jews. They associated this king of the Jews. Somehow this star is tied with the king of the Jews. Well, another thing stated in Matthew chapter 2, verse 1, is that when they did arrive in Jerusalem, Jesus was already born. They did not arrive a few hours after his birth as such. And when they arrived, they're in Jerusalem and they're asking the people, verse 2, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? They already know he's the king of the Jews. And then it says, we saw his star. His star. This king of the Jews, this child, they are associated with a particular star that belongs to this child. That's interesting. Why did they associate that star with it? We don't know that for sure either. Now, there is a prophecy by Balaam. Now, Balaam, in numbers, Balaam was not a good guy, but he will issue a prophecy that is true that God spoke through this compromiser. And here was Balaam's prophecy Found in Numbers 24:17, it says, There shall come forth a star out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. Now, though the prophecy refers to a person primarily, it's not unusual for people to take things literally that are meant to be taken figuratively. Nonetheless, these wise men did associate a star with the king of the Jews. Now, the thing that I want you to, to be most impressed about is that they came to worship this child. And so when these uh, Magi came to worship this newborn king, we see this interchange between Herod and uh, the Magi. And the word, you know, when they came to Jerusalem, they didn't immediately come to the king's palace, they began to ask questions among the inhabitants in Jerusalem. Where is he, born king of the Jews? We followed his star. And look at verse 3. And when Herod the king heard it, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him were troubled. Now, you could look up this word troubled and its various usages, and what it means is to be terrified. Herod was terrified, and the people were terrified in hearing about this news. Now, why, uh, 
Why would Herod be terrified with such news going around from these magi from the east? And why are the inhabitants of Jerusalem all upset by hearing these uh, magi say, Where is he, king of the Jews, born? Well, you've got to know something about Herod to understand this. He was a man of great viciousness. He was called Herod the Great. Now, that's a, no, I mean, we're going to see he was great in being wicked. He did a lot to to rebuild areas, and he was known as being a great builder at the expense of the people, mind you. But here is something about Herod. He was known for killing people who in any way he perceived as a threat to his throne. He even killed some of his own sons who he perceived to be a threat to his throne. Even, get this, even Caesar Augustus, the Roman emperor, has gone on record historically having said this about Herod. Here's what even Augustus said about Herod. It is better to be Herod's swine than his sons, end of quote. That is Augustus's view of Herod. Herod had multiple wives. He had ten wives. And he had more than a dozen children from these ten wives. And he killed several of these sons. And that's why Caesar Augustus says it's better to be a pig than to be one of his sons. He's going to die if he even, even gets a hint that you're a threat to his throne. In fact, he plotted and carried out the destruction of any kind of Jewish connections, uh, even through a marriage. One of his wives was a Jew, and many think he did that just for political purposes. Now, I will know, uh, know some history. This is interesting. I don't know if you realize that Herod is a contemporary of some well-known other figures in history. Ever heard of uh, Mark Antony? Uh, of Rome, who had divorced Octavius's sister. Now, Augustus, before he was named Augustus, he was Octavius. And Mark Antony had divorced Octavius's sister to have an affair with a certain queen of Egypt. You ever heard of a Cleopatra? Yes. Herod was friends with Mark Antony and with Cleopatra. And if you know about Mark Antony, if you know your history, he had a romance with Cleopatra. And we also know because of this close connection between Antony and Cleopatra with Herod, Herod was known to kill anybody that was close to him. He had his own brother-in-law, invited him to a party, Uh, During the summer, they went out swimming, and it just so happened that some of his thugs went in with them, and they were just playing around with Aristopolis and just kept him under the water until he drowned. So he murdered his own brother-in-law because the people loved Aristopolis. This is the type of person. And when the word got back to Antony and Cleopatra, they were concerned about this Herod who just 
decides to just murder people left and right. Well, to make the history shorter, we know the conflict with Antony and the other part of the triumvirate. And Antony will commit suicide. And, of course, if you ever watch the show, Cleopatra will commit suicide as well. Now, whether it's with uh, the cobra, I'm not sure. But Antony and Cleopatra will commit suicide. And Herod is real close to these two. And Octavius or Augustus, Antony was one of his arch enemies. So when Antony and Cleopatra die, Herod is getting real concerned about his own uh, welfare. So he decides to go to Rome itself, and he will grovel before Augustus. And it makes no bones about that he was a loyal person to Antony, but he assured Augustus, I'll be as loyal to you. And you know what? That's what he does. Now, even the historian, the, the famous Jewish historian Josephus, if you heard me talk about, here's what he says about Herod. He was very capable, but he was crafty, and he was cruel. That was Josephus' understanding of him. Now, why was Herod paranoid? Well, for one, Herod, king of the Jews, was not a Jew. He was not a Jew. He was put in power in 40 B.C. by the Roman government to be the king of the Jews. He was a pagan. He knew he was a pagan. The people knew he was a pagan. And he knew that the people preferred to have one of their own real Jews to be king. He always knew that. And most of the Jews in Palestine understood that that Herod was simply an instrument by a foreign power to keep them as the Jews subjugated. And there were several times in history that there were revolts, freedom revolts. And so, now I've said all this to you so that you understand verse 3. That's the reason I said all this to you. Why was... King Herod terrified when he heard, well, there, where's this king of the Jews that we've come to worship? We want to worship. Immediately, Herod says, it's a threat. It's a threat. And he calls the chief priests and the scribes to come in and to tell him, well, what does, uh, what does the scripture say? And they understood the prophecy of Micah. And they tell him the prophecy of Micah says, And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, by no means the least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So the chief priests and the, uh, the scribes, they tell Herod that it is in Bethlehem. Now let me say this something again about prophecy. One thing, the most of the people and the leaders of the Jews, they did understand that the Messiah would come, but they didn't understand him coming first as a suffering servant. That was part of the problem. They always viewed the Messiah as one coming as a conquering king, especially during Jesus' ministry. You'll know that the people wanted to force him to be a king because they thought through Jesus they would overthrow the Romans. And they would be free at last. 
But Jesus, King of kings, Lord of lords, the God-man is born in a manger, meaning in an animal feeding location is what a manger was, essentially. And he's not born in a palace. He's not even born in a house, but in a feeding trough area for animals. The creator of the universe. That is where he is born. The prophecy there in, in Micah stresses the fact, it puts uh, emphasis that it's a meager city. Bethlehem, very small village. That the Messiah would come. And it would come from, as it said, not by the least, uh, or by no means least among the leaders of Judah. In, the, in, in Judah. Now you recall, we talked about Judah, did we not? The Messiah would come from Judah. And we saw something about the ancestry of Judah. He wasn't, uh, he's one of the patriarchs, but he wasn't a great guy either. Remember the story of him thinking, uh, uh, having relations with what he thought was a harlot, but it turns out to be his daughter-in-law, Tamar. And born to Tamar, the children that are conceived are the actual physical Ancestors of the Lord Jesus Christ, this is the ancestor which he comes. So from this small village from Judah, who wasn't the firstborn of, uh, of Jacob by any means, from this tribe would come Shiloh. There in Genesis 49 is that great prophecy that Shiloh would come from Judah. And the word Shiloh means the one to whom it belongs. And it says... That between his feet, Shiloh's feet, he will defeat his, uh, his, uh, his enemies and he will bring about the obedience of the peoples. Genesis 49, 10. And so, out of Judah will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now, I want us to understand that phrase, well, who will shepherd my people Israel I mentioned several weeks ago a common view called Christian Zionism that puts a lot of stress on being a physical descendant uh, of being a Jew or on national Israel. When it says, he will shepherd my people Israel, we got to understand that according to the scriptures, the New Testament, The true Israel. Who is the true Israel? According to Romans and Galatians, it's those who are of the faith of Abraham, not simply because they are physical descendants of Abraham. And so when it says, he will shepherd my people Israel, he's talking about his elect people, those whom we saw last week, whom the Father was going to give him according to John 6. All those elect from the foundation of the world Those are Israel, his people, who happened to be at that time within the confines of national Israel. But he's going to shepherd his people. Who did he come to die for? His people. He will die for his elect, those whom he will draw to himself one day. So now hearing upon this prophecy, uh, Herod, now I didn't mention already that, not only was Herod terrified, why were the people terrified? 
They knew of Herod's propensity to kill people at the drop of a hat if it, they were threatening him. So they thought, oh no, that you don't, don't talk about king of the Jews here. You don't know what's coming down the pike. And why do you think our text says, verse 7, then Herod secretly called the Magi and ascertained the time of the star? Why secretly? Well, you'll see in a moment why he did it secretly. He wants to gather information. First of all, I mean, this is a hypocrite, if there ever was a hypocrite. Because he says in verse 8, And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make careful search for the child, and when you have them, report to me, because I want to come and worship him. Yeah. <laughs> sure. You get an idea why he wanted to talk to the Magi secretly, because he gets the information that it's Bethlehem secretly by meeting with the Magi. So he's got a plot that he's devising. It's an outright lie. And we're told in our text that when the Magi, the Magi go, it says, uh, verse 10, well, verse 9, and having heard the king, they went their way, and lo, the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Now, there have been some conjectures about some. Was there some alignment of Jupiter and some of the planets that created this star of Bethlehem? Not really. That's not a good explanation. The best explanation that some theologians have brought was this star was not acting as an ordinary star. When they began to go from Jerusalem, it began to move with them. This star moved. And then it moved and they followed this star and it came over where the child was. It was not acting as any star they had ever seen. And then verse 11, look at verse 11. And it says, And they came into the manger and saw the child with Mary his mother. Y'all paying attention? I deliberately misread the text. They came into the house and saw the child with Mary, his mother. A manger is not a house. A house is not a manger. And there were no shepherds there either when the wise men came. Now, according to Luke chapter 2, it is true, the angels, I mean, uh, the angels appeared to the shepherds at night, abiding in the field. And the angels, this heavenly host, told them to go to Bethlehem, which they did. And yes, the shepherds came to Jesus and Mary in a manger. You go look it up for yourself. It says the shepherds came to a manger. But there's no wise men there. When the shepherds came. So, all I'm saying to you, 
The Christmas traditional nativity scenes are often fraught with error and presumed fact. We don't know if there were, first of all, what do we know? We don't know if there were three magi. We're not told that there were three. Uh, we're not told that they were kings. Uh, they didn't come, uh, we're told in the text, they didn't come to a manger, they came to a house. And there weren't shepherds there gathered when the wise men gathered. All I'm saying is this, we have to be careful that we don't let tradition get the best of us. And I myself have been guilty of, <clears throat> I don't watch so many movies about Jesus anymore. And there's a reason why <laughs> it's troublesome to see <laughs> some of these guys portrayed as Jesus. But I find myself thinking of historical events in the, t- the ministry of Christ based on a movie. And I have to back off and say, wait a minute. That's not how the Bible says it. It's by how Jesus of Nazareth in the movie in the 1970s portrayed it. Although they did get baptism right when they were uh, pouring water on it. <laughs> so, the thing about it is, a lot of the things we do by tradition that are uh, scriptural. We just need to understand is how the scripture presents it. Now, there is certain, there were three gifts. And those three gifts were gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Those are the three gifts that are given by these magi. Now, why these three gifts? Now, this is most interesting, and I don't know if you knew about this. Afterwards, you can tell me if you knew about this. It was a belief of one of the early church fathers. A church father is one of the great leaders of the early church. One of the great leaders of the early church was a man by the name of Origen. And Origen said that the gifts of the Magi were, as he said, gold as to a king, myrrh as to one who was mortal, and incense as to one who is God. And others that have followed Origen concur that there is uh, probably not far off. So do you understand what Origen was saying? And I think there's good biblical merit for this. Jesus is the King of kings, Lord of lords, and Jesus is the God-man in one person. Now, in Scripture, gold is frequently associated with royalty. You can look up all the verses you want and you will see this. And so when they gave gold to this child, they are giving gold to the king of the Jews. Frankincense is frequently mentioned in connection with service to Jehovah. It was stored in a chamber in the sanctuary, used with meal offerings, and as an ingredient, it was not for the common people, it was intended only for use or Jehovah, God. So frankincense as a gift immediately suggests it was given to recognize the deity of his son. And after all, what did these magi do when they found him? They bowed down and worshipped, worshipped this child. They understood more than you might think. 
And we're told that just as gold and king go together, and so frankincense, frankincense and God go together, what about myrrh? Well, myrrh was often part of anointing oil. And it was a perfume used for the interests of mortal men that made life more pleasant. Uh, it was used to make pain less painful as an ointment. And it was used in burial so that there was, the burial was less repulsive with this anointing with myrrh. So the gifts of these magi and their actions and their worship says it all. The gifts were appropriate. Gold for a king, frankincense to a child who is God, the fullness of deity, and myrrh for a man destined to die. So, I think that's not far-fetched to understand a certain correlation there uh, and why Origen and others said of the nature of the gift. Did these wise men know all of this? Though? Did they know exactly what they were doing by these gifts? We can't tell, know for sure, but then don't sell them short either. How did they come to associate a star with the king of the Jews and understand these messianic prophecies? They knew more than you might think they did. And they wanted to worship this child, who was king of the Jews. Well, in verse 12, we're told, now you understand why uh, Herod wanted to meet secretly with the Magi, because verse 12 says, And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed for their own country by another way. Now, they would have, what did Herod say? Come back and tell me so I can go worship him. God stopped the Magi from going back to Herod because he knew, yeah, they'll go back to Herod, but the meeting was secret, and he would meet them with a sword to shut them up. It's like he shut all or anybody else up who was a threat to his throne. And so God warned the Magi, go back a different way. Which they did. Look at verse 13. Now when they had departed, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise and take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. And remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. So God not only warns the Magi, he warns Joseph. Get out of Dodge. Well, so to speak. Go to Egypt and stay in Egypt until it's safe to come back. Meaning, until Herod dies, because Herod is out to destroy the child. Now, in this regard, we're told in the text, now why did God tell, why Egypt of all places? Why not go to the northern part of Galilee? When I go out to the deserts over to the, to the east, why Egypt? Because Scripture says, out of Egypt I will call 
my son. Turn to Hosea 11.1. 1. When Israel was a youth, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Now notice what our text, inspired text, says. Verse 14, And he arose and took the child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt, and there was there until the death of Herod, that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, Out of Egypt did I call my son. So why Egypt? So that prophecy will be fulfilled. God says, I am always watching over my word to perform it. This prophecy was given centuries and centuries ago. Not only the prophecy of where he would be born in Bethlehem, but he would come out of Egypt. And we're going to say, when they came out of Egypt, why didn't they settle in Bethlehem? Why didn't they settle in Judea? Where did they go? They went back, Joseph went back to Nazareth, so that in the ministry of Jesus, it would be Jesus of Nazareth. For I came, he would be known as a Nazarene. Brethren, God will work out things beyond your imagination to be sure His plan will be fulfilled. Not maybe, but that it will. And in our actions that we are doing, that we are responsible for, that God's not forcing us against our will, we'll do those things. But guess what? God has a plan for you. You're one of His children. He's a plan for you to use you for His glory. And He will manipulate the circumstances to get you at the right place at the right time. My great-great-grandfather, that I've told you about William Otteson, his personal testimony was how, the, how God worked out the circumstances to be at that little chapel in Little Hell, that little community, to hear the preaching finally, and his heart was one to Christ. I always wondered why did I choose to go to Utah, living in, in Tennessee, when some of my Tennesseans said, where is Utah? It didn't make any sense. I had a tennis scholarship, full scholarship, to go to East Tennessee State, 50 miles away. I gave it up. I was an unbeliever. Why would I give something like that up? But it was out there the Lord met me and saved me. You see, the Lord, He won't let you make that. Now, it was my decision to go. But the Lord says, I'm going to get you out there. And that is where I'm going to drive home your need for me. And that's where I'm going to save you. You see, God in His prophecies, He will watch over His prophecies. And I don't care what the circumstances are, how bleak they may appear to be, He will fulfill it. And there's, like I said, a lot of prophecies yet to be fulfilled. Now, I do want to close with this passage in Revelation 12, because it's pertinent. Turn to Revelation 12. Revelation 12, beginning in verse 1 through verse 6. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. And she was with child, and she cried out, being in labor and in pain, to give birth. 
And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and on the heads were seven diadems, and his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them into the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth he might devour her child. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that she might be nourished for 1,260 days. It's talking about the birth of Jesus, who is the head of the church. And who is the dragon but Satan, who was using Herod who was a pawn of Rome, talking about these ten uh, provinces, the seven diadems. You can go through Revelation and talks about the Roman Empire had. Herod was a pawn of that uh, empire, and he was out to destroy, or thought he could destroy, the Messiah. But, you may say, Now, God is God, and he could have easily protected the Messiah in Bethlehem, right? Yes. But why did he go to Egypt? To fulfill prophecy. (laughs) That's why. No, No power on earth was going to allow Herod to achieve his thing. And it would be, we're going to see next week, it's going to be a terrifying thing of what Herod does in trying to get this child king of the Jews. But he will fail. Of course he will fail. God's purpose uh, is to be confirmed. And only in the fullness of time and at the precise time will Jesus voluntarily Remember this, Jesus voluntarily gives up his life. And many times people tried to seize Jesus to kill him, and he would just disappear through the crowd. Because the Bible says it was not his time. It was not his time. I've done this about the story of the birth of Jesus, hopefully to bring out some things to understand this passage about who Herod was and and all the minute ways that God fulfills his prophecy. This is the God whom we worship. And centuries will pass. And centuries may still pass. But all of God's promises will come to pass. I guarantee you. Let us pray.